The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, Springs Church. Welcome, everybody. Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. It's so good to be with you. And if you're here uh, in the room, welcome. If you're tuning in online, welcome to you. And of course, we always try to make a point of acknowledging our visitors. If you are here, please give us a chance to talk with you afterwards, linger a little while, but we're really grateful that you've chosen to be with us this morning. And you're here on week five of an eight-week sermon series called Philippians, One Spirit, One Mind, and One Love. And I wanted to remind you that if you need to go back and catch up on any sermons you might have missed, or if you just want to go listen to anything really from the last five or six years that Ben or I or any of our other guest speakers have preached, uh, you can do that on our sermon podcast, uh, if you know what a podcast is, um, and if there is an app that you use for that, you can just search for The Springs Church, or if you go to thesprings.cc slash messages, you can click listen. But we're in week five this morning, which lands us in Philippians chapter three, verses one through 11, if you want to turn over in your Bibles. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me, and for you it is a source of steadfastness. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your eternal word, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. God, we give thanks for this word that instructs us, guides us, corrects us, encourages and inspires us on our journey of following your son, Jesus Christ. God, 
I ask for the gift of preaching, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to illuminate this text and give us the power to live it out in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to ask you a question this morning that I feel certain you've probably asked yourselves at some point in your lives. The question is this, in an emergency situation, how confident are you that you could land an airplane? I know you've asked that question, because I've asked that question, right, every time you're on a plane. Turns out a lot of people have asked this question. I came across an article back in March the title of which was basically, think you can land a plane in an emergency? Think again. You've seen too many movies. Right, and they interviewed all these aviation experts and these pilots, and they were like, hey, you don't think you can perform an emergency heart transplant, right? Why do you think you can land this jet going 160 miles an hour, dropping 1,000 feet a minute safely? Like, first of all, Good luck getting in the cockpit post 9-11, right? Good luck operating the speaker to talk to air traffic control or any of that, much more all of the actual flying the plane things. Turns out there is a psychological phenomenon for this called the Dunning-Kruger effect, where it seems like the less somebody knows about something, the more, they tend to, the more we tend to overestimate our ability to succeed at that thing. Right? And yes, in fact, most, al- almost half of American men are either somewhat confident or very confident <laughs> that they can successfully do this. I texted this article to my family and my dad and my brother-in-law were like, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure I actually still could. <laughs> men of great confidence. <laughs> I, I was pretty confident that I could too before reading that article. Where, where does that confidence come from? Right? Where, where does our confidence come from in general? To broaden the question, where do we derive our confidence from? Right? Paul is talking about confidence this morning, and he's been talking about the mind of Christ in Philippians, and I love in chapter three that he kind of gives us a little more biography, gets a little more personal. He pulls back the curtain. He says, hey, this is who I was. This is where my confidence was, and this is where it is now. So I want to look at that and ask the question about where our confidence comes from with Paul in Philippians chapter three, going back to verses two and three. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul's upset here because one of the biggest questions for the early church was about circumcision. All of the earliest Christians were Jews, and how you become a member of the Jewish people, God's covenant people, is circumcision. So all of these early Christian Jews are saying, well, what about the Gentiles? If, if they're going to get into the church, into Israel, then do they need to be circumcised? What's the deal there? Paul and the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 said, no, they don't. That's fine. They're, they're born into Abraham's family through baptism, through faith, through grace, Okay. No circumcision. 
but some disagreed, right? And so you can see Paul get mad at these people who are coming along to his converts to the way of Jesus and stirring up this anxiety about circumcision and about this fleshly status marker, right? They're trying to put confidence in the flesh. And Paul says, no, our confidence is in Christ, So that's one of the ways that Paul means confidence in the flesh. Here's another way. Circumcision, not really a live issue for us. But there's a second sense in which he means confidence in the flesh. And I think that's the confidence that we're all aware of. Confidence based on any kind of just earthly status marker. Right? Any kind of special earthly status that allows us to be prideful and haughty. Right? And overly confident. Paul wants people to go from high and mighty to the lowly. Remember, that's the mind of Christ. But the other direction is the opposite of what he wants, right? To go from lowly to try to have this high and mighty, haughty confidence in the flesh. That's what he's fighting against. But that's precisely what we often want to have. We like confidence in the flesh, We like people who are confident in the flesh. We like the action hero who, trusting their own instincts and wits, jumps in the cockpit and lands the plane without regarding anybody else and what they think. We like Maria von Trapp from The Sound of Music who sings, I have confidence, right? She says, everything will turn out fine. I have confidence. The world can all be mine. They'll have to agree. I have confidence where? In me. But Paul says, not so fast. And Paul wants us to know that he's not making this critique of fleshly confidence as a resentful outsider. Paul's making this critique from within the halls of honor and fleshly confidence. So that's where he goes to in verse 4. Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Circumcised on the eighth day. He's been a Jew since birth. He's not an adult convert. He's not an Ishmaelite doing it at 13. Paul's been there from the beginning. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I was surprised to know that's a prestigious tribe. When they allotted the land in the Old Testament to the 12 tribes of Israel, guess what? Benjamin got Jerusalem and the temple. So very good to belong to Benjamin. A Hebrew born of Hebrews. If Paul was from Oklahoma, sooner born and sooner bred, right? I'm dyed in the wool. I've been there the whole time. Okay, that's Paul's ascribed status. Sociologists like to to split up our statuses into ascribed status, what we're kind of just born with, just by accident of who we're born to, where we're born, who our parents are, who we are. We have these statuses. But then there's Paul's achieved status. Obviously what Paul has done, actually, with his life to find status. And so for Paul, that's the fact that as to the law, He's a Pharisee. He belonged to the strictest religious sect of his people. Right? He was 
all about purity of his people. And therefore, as to zeal, he persecuted the church. That's a plus in this column of fleshly confidence for Paul's old self, right? He's so interested in purity, he will banish and persecute and try to stamp out this heretical Jesus-following sect, right? Master status. George Hunzinger says, this is the status that is supreme above all the most important foundational status. And he says, for Paul, that is his righteousness under the law, blameless. This is Paul's essential spiritual position before God, right? The goal of his life is to be found righteous. And he's not saying that he had fully achieved spiritual perfection, but in regards to the restrictions and regulations of the law, Paul has been radically faithful. That's his master status. These are Paul's reasons for confidence in the flesh. So we gotta ask ourselves, what are our reasons for confidence in the flesh? Paul gives us a nice little list, and so I sat down this last week for a few minutes and I thought up some of the things, some of the places we might try to place our confidence in the flesh. Let's hear if these resonate or not. The place of our birth, the brands we wear, the products we use, our parents, our physical features, our cosmetic tweaks, the gyms we frequent, the stores we shop at, the shows we watch, the books we read, the bands we like, the people we follow, the facts we know, the schools we went to, the degrees we earned, the neighborhood we inhabit, the skills we've mastered, the vehicles we drive, the places we've been, the people we've met, the people we hang out with, the people our kids hang out with, the schools our kids go to, the things our kids have achieved, the teams we root for, the resorts we've stayed in, the experiences we've had, the places we've worked, the salaries we've earned, the political party we belong to, the people we have or have not voted for, the church we attend, the teams we've played for, the clubs we've belonged to, and the accolades we've received. Any of that resonate? Now, I'm not condemning these things by including them in that list. There's a lot of goods in that list to be sought. But what I am calling into question is the value with which we place upon them. The unquestioned, unparalleled value and confidence that we derive from these things. Our measurement of confidence and success Is it according to the flesh, or is it according to Christ? Because I'm also not condemning confidence in itself, right? Here's the key. The mind of Christ does not subtract from confidence. The mind of Christ changes the source of our confidence. Paul's not condemning confidence You've read his letters. He's a confident guy. Some of the most confident behavior I've seen is in the stories of Jesus and Paul in the New Testament. It's the stories of the Christian saints and martyrs that we've heard. And Paul, 
even in the first chapter of Philippians, he talks about confidence, uses this same word as a positive thing. In verse 14, he says, most of the brothers and sisters having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. So once again, the mind of Christ is flipping things upside down. It's turning our regular sources of confidence on their heads. Normally you would be confident by your leader's power to put other people in prison, but Paul says, hey, I've been put in prison and they're confident about that because I'm remaining faithful to the Lord. He's with me, right? It's upside down. It's the mind of Christ. And as Paul says in verse three, It is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now I like the New English translation. They render that confidence in the flesh. Do not rely on human credentials. Which is what Paul gives us, right? In that list, of his statuses, he's giving us his human credentials. And I kinda got focused this past week on that little, those four little letters, cred in credentials, right? It's, it's from the Latin, and cred means believe or trust, right? That's what credentials are. When we walk into our doctor's office and we see their credentials on the wall, from an accredited institution, we have reason to believe and trust them with our bodies, with treating us, all right? And then we walk out of the office and we might go pay for our visit with a credit card, which means that the bank believes we will pay them back with their money, right? Cred, believe, trust. But Paul says, don't rely on human credentials. And then he switches from talking about credentials to credit, to loss and gain, because in verse seven he says, yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So church, we're back to doing kingdom math again. Remember from a couple of weeks ago, Paul said that to live is Christ, to die is gain? What? We're doing kingdom math again. Paul says, all, the best that I had to offer, all of my statuses, all of my human credentials, my credits, those are actually debits, right? The, the things that were debited to my account, that were gains, that were in the accounts receivable column on the ledger. I've actually transferred those to the accounts payable. They're loss, they're debits, compared to knowing Jesus Christ, who as we said, in life and in death is worth more than anything. In fact, that New English translation, translates this in verse seven. It says, but these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. 
More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung. This is not the message. Is that up on the screen yet? This is actually the New English translation, and it's a faithful rendering, right? Paul actually uses, I think maybe back one slide. Paul actually uses a word, there it is. Paul uses a word that can mean dung, excrement, refuse, rubbish, as the translation we were using uses. It's trash. It was gain, now it's loss. In light of knowing Jesus, Paul's using this crass, vulgar term to say, hey, this used to matter so much, and now I regard it as a liability. Now it's not a credit to my account. Now it's a debit. You see, instead of confidence in the flesh, Paul now has confidence in Christ. Paul now has confidence in Jesus. In other words, Paul has traded his credit and credentials for a credo. Credo, again, those four letters, means I believe. And credo is the first word of many of the historic Christian creeds that some churches recite weekly around the world. We actually sing the creeds in several different songs, but often we'll sing a song called This I Believe, and we say, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one. Credo, I believe. Paul has traded his credit and credentials for a credo. Paul has put his faith in Christ. It's based on faith, right? Going back to verses eight and nine, Paul says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Final Latin word for this morning. There's a little four-letter Latin word in the word confidence, the letters F-I-D-E, fide. It means faith. Paul's confidence is now based on faith. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul tells us what that faith is in. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul has heard the testimony of people who saw the risen Jesus and then Paul saw the risen Jesus. Remember the road to Damascus? He had this life and death dramatic encounter with the risen Jesus and now Paul's confidence is in that risen Jesus Nothing else matters the same way. The valuation, the math he's doing, the confidence he has, has all been turned upside down and everything has been cast in this dramatic new light because of the risen Jesus. 
In verse 7, he says, These assets I've come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. I've told a story before about Lara's childhood best friend, Megan, and her husband, Alex. They're dear friends of ours. I told a story about their campus evangelism and ministry out in Colorado last year. But they also lived through a very harrowing life and death experience back in 2019. It was 2.30 in the morning, and they were awoken from their beds by three masked gunmen in their bedroom who had crept into their house through a basement window that happened to be unlocked. And they got out of bed, and they were forced to be on the floor and held hostage for two hours while these gunmen stole iPhones, credit cards, social security cards, while they threatened murder, while they forced them to drive them to an ATM and withdraw money and come back. And in the middle of this crisis, Megan actually said to one of the gunmen, she said, look, we've got money and we're gonna give you whatever money you want, but what you really need is Jesus. Can I pray for you? And the gunman said yes. And as these men were eventually caught and tried and convicted at trial with their mothers sitting in the courtroom, Megan actually said that she forgave them. And I remember Alex told me something striking in retrospect after this happened to them. He, he said in that moment, and he told this to the gunman, he said, you, you can have anything, just leave my wife alone. And he said in that moment, nothing in his house mattered at all. All of, all of the things that he had, all of his possessions, everything, not, everything was cast in this dramatic new light by this life and death encounter that they had. And Paul has had this dramatic life and death encounter with the risen Jesus. Paul's been shipwrecked. He's been imprisoned. He's been tortured. But Paul has seen the risen Jesus and now everything else that he thought mattered so much, everything else in which he placed his confidence, it's all trash. Paul says it's rubbish. It, it, can, be, it can be thrown away. It can be flushed away. I don't need to see it again. Right? Paul says all of this stuff that I once put in the credit account, that I once thought was so important, that I once founded my identity and confidence upon, Paul says that's all loss to me now. It's rubbish because I've seen the risen Jesus because I've been saved from that by faith in the risen Jesus because Jesus is the only one who has actually overcome the grave. So now all of my confidence, Paul says, is in him. All of my boasting is in Christ because the mind of Christ is a humility that flips our confidence on its head that tears away our credit and our credentials and gives us simply belief in Jesus. 
the only one who has overcome the grave. All of the tyrants of history, all the most powerful people in our society and across the globe, not a single one of them has overcome death. Not a single one has come from beyond the grave but Jesus Christ. So if we want confidence beyond the grave, it has to be in Jesus. It has to be in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, who lifts up the lowly and is in solidarity with weakness. The Jesus who gave everything so that we might see what is truly valuable in life. Knowing Jesus Christ loving God, loving our neighbor in Jesus Christ and putting our faith and confidence and trust in him. Church, let us stand and put our confidence in song in the risen Jesus Christ.